Blessed are the peacemakers, is the beatitude we come to today. It's found in verse 9. I'll read the first nine verses. Aren't you glad for the peace of God? Say amen. My wife and I remember how it was just a year ago. As she, a little bit more than a year ago, she faced cancer surgery. And the night before the surgery, we read together Psalm 86, and I slipped over to the piano, and I played that chorus I love so much based on Isaiah 26, verse 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace. In the Hebrew, it's peace, peace. It's exceedingly great peace. Whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And I don't want to make this all about us, but God sustained our spirits the next day in an amazing way and confirmed things providentially. Blessed are the peacemakers. God is a God of peace. Look at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up into a mountain. And when he was set or seated, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's the apex verse. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Last week we considered, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And today, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I feel led by the Lord to continue in this series today rather than preach a special message for Thanksgiving, though nothing wrong with that. I've done that many times, and we'll celebrate this theme through the week. But I pray that as a result of the message today, we will all be more grateful for peace, peace of God, as well as peace with God. I've mentioned it a couple of times, but I'll never forget standing in a beautiful home in Grand Cayman, where I had the privilege of ministering for almost 20 years, in paradise and a lovely home. The lady had just visited our church there, a startup church at the time, and so we were visiting her back and returning the favor. It was a good time, and she was very cordial. As we came to the end of the visit, I said, can I pray? And she said, oh, yes. And then tears started streaming down her eyes. And she said, would you pray for peace in this house? I couldn't believe it because this lady and her husband owned the leading interior decorating business on the island. They could have had anything they wanted to decorate their home, and they did. It was lavish. It was beautiful. But it takes more than decorations to make a home, doesn't it? takes peace. Were it not for peace, we would be of all men most miserable. We just sang that great hymn, for the beauty of the earth, then enumerated on the last stanza, the blessing, peace on earth and joy in heaven. It doesn't get any better than that. That's the ultimate. There's no virtue more highly touted, probably no virtue more sought after today than peace. Even the world pays lip service to that. But there's no virtue that eludes us more 
we soon come into Christmas month. We'll consider what the angels said on that first Christmas night when they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And though that was announced by the angels at Christ's birth 2,000 years ago, there's really very little, if any, peace on the earth. And so we'll probably sing it as we get closer to Christmas Day, Longfellow's famous hymn about, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, and one of those stanzas, then in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's a little bit cynical, isn't it? But a lot of men have grown cynical in their futile attempts to achieve peace. Probably the most cynical expression I ever heard was somebody said, peace is that glorious moment in history when everybody stops to reload. How disillusioned men have become about the empty promises of world peace. Maybe you're old enough to remember, at least you're a student of history, you realize that in 1938, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain of the United Kingdom stepped off a plane in London. He waved a piece of paper with Adolf Hitler's signature on it, the Munich Agreement, and he said to a cheering crowd those famous words, peace in our time. But less than a year later, Hitler had invaded Czechoslovakia, and World War II had been launched in full fury. How elusive is peace. But our God is the God of peace. Several times that expression is found, most notably Hebrews 13, verse 20. So it's, if God is a God of peace, if by nature He's a, a peaceable God, we'll talk more about that, then man and sin has, is what has brought discord and ruined God's peace. Satan is the disturber of the peace. God has so ordered His moral universe that there must be, are you listening? There must be righteousness before there can be peace. Isaiah 32, verse 17. And the effect of righteousness shall be peace. James 3, verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. No righteousness, no peace. That's the way God has ordained it. Now to be a peacemaker is to be like God. To be a peacemaker is to be like Jesus who the Bible says in Ephesians 2.14, didn't just make our peace, He is our peace. In the seventh beatitude, Jesus said that we believers have a most important part in spreading the peace of God on earth. This is for us. This is to us. During the pandemic, we heard the word super spreader in pretty bad sense, but I hope we'll turn that a little bit today and use it in a good sense. We all need to be super spreaders of the peace of God. Notice again the order of the Beatitudes. Right before this seventh blessing, blessed are the peacemakers. The one we expounded last week, the sixth, was blessed are the pure in heart. Again, this is the order of God's Word. Purity in heart comes first. James 3, 17 says, but the wisdom which is from above is first what? Pure then peaceable. Likewise, being a peacemaker leads very plausibly into what the next beatitude talks about. Blessed are they which are 
persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not everybody's going to appreciate us and be melted by our being peace-loving. <laughs> I hope I didn't burst your bubble with that. That's just not going to happen. We find it in, in the inspired utterance of the psalmist, Psalm 120, verses 6 and 7. He said, My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. Then he said this, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. We will have to be at peace with God and with our own hearts if we would leave our persecutors to God. Not panic, not cavil. Now, what did Jesus mean by the word peacemaker? We need to understand four key biblical concepts here about peace. And I think when we leave today, we'll have a little bit better idea of what Jesus meant here. First of all, there's the essence of peace. What is true peace? I think you know that it's not just the mere absence of hostilities. It's not just taking time to reload. We've had unbroken wars around the world for so long that millions don't understand that peace is not just an absence of hostility. For centuries, the Jews have greeted one another with, what's that key word that if you don't know any other Hebrew word you know what is it shalom that's more than just peace when one Jew says that word to another they're not just saying I bear you no ill will I I rest in peace so that I'm not going to kill you no it, it goes beyond that they desire for that person all the righteousness and goodness all the health that God can give It's a blessing for God's best, for inner completeness, for tranquility. The essence of peace can be seen in the nature of God Himself. We read Hebrews 13, or I quoted Hebrews 13, verse 20, Romans 15, 33, speaks as one of six places in the Bible that speaks of the God of peace. God is a God of peace. He is peace. He's at peace with Himself. Again, I'll say, you know God is always happy. You probably had some moments this week when you weren't too happy. I know that. I know, I know what some of you have been through. But God is always happy. God is always calm. He's satisfied. He's fulfilled. We don't have to worry that we're going to catch Him in a bad mood. There are no conflicts in the nature of God. His attributes are in perfect proportion with each other and they work in harmony with each other his mercy does never clashes with his justice his love is is never at at odds with his holiness when he grants to man the power and the right to pray that does not in any way conflict with his sovereignty whether we understand it or not God is never surprised. He never has to scramble to respond to an emergency or come up with a contingency plan. There's no jealousy in the Godhead with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Talk about shalom. That's where it is to the ultimate in the Godhead. God is the source of true peace. And any peace coming from elsewhere is probably a fragile truce at best. 
if not a false peace. It's the very nature of God, peace. But I hope it will bless your heart even more to meditate for a moment on peace as the legacy of the resurrected, the crucified and resurrected Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 27, I wish you'd turn there. I won't have you turn to a lot of verses, but I want you to see this one even before Jesus offered himself on the cross, but in anticipation of it, he said to his disciples there in the upper room, here it is, 1427, what's the very first word, class? Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus said, my peace. Have you stopped to think about what that peace must be like? The very peace of Christ. The very peace of the one who when his disciples were panicking and, and woke him up, he was asleep in the hull of the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And they said, Lord, don't you care that we perish? But he was at such peace he could sleep in a storm. The peace of the one who stood before Pilate and he said, don't you realize I have the power to crucify you or to release you? And he just spoke calmly and said, you'd have no power at all except that we're given you by my Father. Wow. That's the legacy He offers us. That kind of peace. Colossians 1 verse 20, having made peace through the blood of the cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. That verse is being twisted by some dominion theologians. Be careful. Jesus Christ is God's peacemaker. God is a God of peace. Jesus is our peace. The Holy Spirit is the communicator of peace. He's the conveyancer. I love to think about how Jesus is God's peace child. Some of you remember the book that was made into a film a number of years ago about the, the life of a great missionary. He just went to be with the Lord a few years ago, Brother Don Richardson. Don and his wife Carol were missionaries in uh, New Guinea among the headhunters. They were working with a Sawi tribe, S-A-W-I. They were trying to help them understand the gospel, how to understand the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and the blood atonement. And they just weren't getting anywhere. But the tribe they were working with had a custom that if one village gave a baby boy to another village, there would be peace between those two villages as long as that child lived. And a light bulb went off in Richardson's mind, and so he understood how he could present Christ as God's peace child, offered to man to reconcile him to God. And because Jesus lives eternally, that peace will never end. And as the book and the film so eloquently speak, it was, that was the key that God used to unlock the minds and hearts of those heathen people. Many of them believed on Jesus Christ. A vibrant church was established among them. Yes, Jesus is God's peace child. 
So peace is not only the nature of God, it is the legacy of Jesus Christ to His own, but it is, thirdly, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22, you know it by heart, I hope you do. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. What's the third thing mentioned, class? Peace. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Wherever the Holy Spirit resides, He gives the gift of peace. So the Father is the source of peace. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the manifestation of peace. He is our peace. But the Holy Spirit is the communicator of God's peace. And through Him we have not only peace with God, but we have the peace of God. And I want to remind you this morning, I know you know this, at least you've heard it before, but we need to stop and think about it. We're not talking about just the natural disposition that someone might have here. Sometimes we talk about somebody being naturally peace-loving. They're just easygoing, compliant, kind of an appeaser. And if you have several children and one or more of them is not that way, you're very thankful for a compliant child. I've heard some of you say that. But we're not talking about just the natural tendency to be peace-loving here. That kind of peace is not the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of your own temperament. So it works the other way. Likewise, you, by nature, you may not be very peaceable. Maybe you love to play the devil's advocate. You love to stir the pot. You may kind of have a hyper disposition. And you've had a lot of turmoil, perhaps, and unrest in your own past. Can I just encourage you to, by saying to you today, God can change all of that by His grace and through His Spirit, and He can make you calm, gentle, subdued, restrained. And it's not because you're on some kind of tranquilizer. People will see this good work in you and glorify your Father, as Jesus went on to say in verse 16 of the same chapter, chapter 5 of Matthew. Let's have a true understanding of the essence of peace. But then secondly, I want you to see the enemy of peace. What is it that opposes peace? Well, you know what that is, sin. Sin and Satan. The real culprit that disturbs the peace is is sin and the devil. It is sin who separates from God, who's the only true source of peace. The Bible says in Isaiah 48, verse 22, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the what? The wicked. It's sin that stirs the pot. It is sin that makes people restless and hostile and discontent. It is sin that alienates. It is sin that divides people so they're not at peace with one another. Sin causes inner unrest. Where does conflict and restlessness and just abrasiveness come from? Well, the Bible answers that question. You can turn there quickly, turn to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It is James who uses the word double-minded more than anyone. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, from whence come wars and fightings, the word literally is brawlings. From whence come wars and brawlings among you? Come they not hence even of your circumstances? No. They come from your lusts that war in your members. 
And psychologists can come up with all kinds of fancy words for it. They can call it cognitive dissonance and other sophisticated names. But the Bible tells it like it is. And the Bible says that the sinner who has inner turmoil is due to his sin. Even a believer who's double-minded, as James refers to several times, and at least twice in, in his epistle, is unstable in all of his ways. A man who's unstable has no peace. He's always agitated, restless, uncertain, worried, nervous, insecure. I think a lot of Christians could go home from the hospital and they wouldn't have nervous breakdowns if they could just be at peace with God and with themselves. What does God will for us? Well, He wants us to have a peace that passes understanding, that guards our hearts and minds, as we read in Philippians 4, 7, and 8, regardless of the turmoil, regardless of the strife on the outside. You know about a hurricane, there's an eye of a hurricane. And inside that eye, the very center of the storm, even if the winds are up to 180 miles an hour at the perimeter, inside that eye, it's perfectly calm. You can see the sun. Happened back in 1932 in Cayman Brack, where my missionary in-laws were, have been for many years. They didn't have all the media, they didn't have all the means of communication and all the radar and so forth that they had now, and there was a great storm that came, uh, a great hurricane, and uh, they have a, a bluff on the island that runs the entire length. Some of you have been there. It's a sheer lover's leap on the east end of the island, 160 feet into the ocean. There are many caves in that bluff. And during that storm, the people went to the caves, the higher caves, and they knew they'd be safe. Then all of a sudden, it turned calm as it could be, and the sun came out, and it was just beautiful and still, and they all came out, and you know what happened. The backlash of the storm got them. Over 100 people on a little island died. Some of them died because of drinking the contaminated water left by the storm. But the point I'm making is you can be in that eye all the time. Things can be churning all around you. And you and I can have the peace of God. Let me tell you, the world is looking for us to have that. Because they don't have it. I'm going to say something that needs to be said, though I run the risk of being misunderstood. It's amazing how fast transgenderism is being fostered on the youth of today. And so we hear a lot about gender dysphoria. Voice getting quiet. The social experimenters would have us believe that there's a a tension and an unease a person has because of a mismatch between his or her biological sex and gender identity. Is that the real cause? No, says Walter Heyer, who himself underwent gender reassignment and lived for eight years as a woman until the early 1990s, and now he goes around telling everybody, he can, uh, that there's hope in Jesus Christ, that he has found himself. You don't want to go the transgender route. You don't want to have reassignment surgery like he did. He told a journalist just this past week, and I went back and checked. I want to get my facts straight. 
He said, a man who's been through it, there's no such thing as a transgender. There's no such thing as gender dysphoria. He calls it generalized dysphoria. He says it's an inner restlessness, an unhappiness, a dissatisfaction, a frustration that sets in. Why? Because one is dissatisfied with the way God made him or her. The wicked are not at peace with God or with themselves. And we're all wicked. Not just those who call themselves transgender. Bible says in Proverbs 13, verse 10, only by pride cometh contention. Would you agree with me? Contention is pretty much the opposite of peace. What is pride? Pride is the awful, damning sin of Satan and of man who he influenced to believe a lie about God. So if, if two people are at odds with each other, or two groups of people are not getting along, you can mark it down, at least one faction or perhaps both are guilty of blinding and stubborn pride. The Bible says only by pride comes contention. It didn't allow for anything else. Man's inner war caused by his sinful desires causes him to be at strife with his fellow man. That's why the first son born to human parents, instead of becoming the Messiah that Eve hoped he would be, turned out to be the first murderer. The underlying cause is rebellion against God. Cain was jealous of Abel because God accepted Abel's blood sacrifice and not Cain's fruit of the ground gift. The cause of men's rejection of Christ's offer of peace is sin. In Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus said something staggering. I've really pondered this many times. He said, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. What? The Prince of Peace? Words coming from the one of whom it was said, by the angels, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But he said, I came not to bring peace. That's what he said. I came to bring a sword. In Luke 23, verse 5, the chief priests were accusing Jesus before Pilate, and they said, he stirreth up the people. He's causing factions. Three times in the Gospel of John, it says that there was a division because of Jesus. How could that be? This gentle shepherd, this gift of God's love, this peace child, this prince of peace. Why was there division instead of peace? I think you know. It's because men rejected God's olive branch. Men rejected the peace child. Jesus came to reconcile men to God. But peace doesn't come by circumventing or ignoring sin. Jesus highlighted the sin that was in men's hearts. He exposed their depravity. They didn't like that. We still don't like that. Jesus suffered on the cross in the place of sinners. He died the just for the unjust. He died to bring us to God. 
And so someone has said it so eloquently, the sin question, are you listening? The sin question has now become the sun question. How can I have my sins forgiven is all wrapped up in what will I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? There can be no peace until a person has laid down his arms unconditionally surrendered, repented towards God of his sin, personally received God's provision for sin, which is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the peace offering. Let me tell you, if you're going to get saved or if you have been saved, it's always on God's terms, it's not on yours or mine. We need to realize men are proud and reject Christ because of sin. That's the enemy of peace. But I want you to see thirdly the envoys, the ambassadors of peace. That's us. The angels can announce peace to men as they did when Jesus was born, lighting up the heavens around Bethlehem. But angels can't be peacemakers. Only those who have experienced the peace of God can share it. So we believers are called by Paul's teaching, inspired of the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5, if you'll turn to that, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, we are called ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. Notice verse 19. While you're turning there, let me just say, the United Nations has miserably failed to advance peace. There are more wars today than there have ever been in the history of the earth. It's almost laughable if it weren't so tragic. I mean, the fox is in charge of the hen house. Some of the countries on the, have you read the, who's on the Human Rights Council right now, the United Nations? Cuba. Um, the, the, the countries in Africa, Senegal, and several others that are far from having peace. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. We, us, believers, the church, We have entered into the peace of God because Jesus has torn down the wall that separated us between us and His Father. Now we are privileged to be ambassadors of the King of Kings. I mentioned this, what Spurgeon said. I said it a few weeks ago, but he said, pardon poachers, and maybe some of you people don't know what a poacher is. Those of you who go hunting and have to get a license, you know. He said, pardon poachers make the best game wardens. Could I tweak that a little bit and say this? Reclaim subjects of Satan makes, make God's best envoys. Be ye reconciled to God. That's our mission and our mandate. Let's be sure to get that straight. We are not commissioned to go to other people and say, let me show you how God wants you to have your best life now. We are not commissioned to go to people and say, you know, Jesus died to reclaim your negative self-esteem. 
We are called, if we see ourselves the way God sees us, we are called to go to people and say it, yes, in love, but in all the sincerity that our soul can muster and tell them, lay down your arms. Quit resisting God. It is hard for you to kick against the ox goads. Repent of sin and believe the gospel. On the authority of our Master, our King, be reconciled to God. And so the word of reconciliation is our sacred trust. As I said recently in a message right before we had communion, as we read here in, in the same passage, as far as God can make it, as far as God can make it, the world is reconciled unto Him through Christ. Because it says here in Christ, He reconciled the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. We can't compromise that message. Let's not spoil it by the inconsistency of our life that contradicts our message sometimes. Yes, Jesus has died. As far as God can make it, the world is reconciled unto Him because of the death of His Son. But here's the thing. Millions yet don't know that. Millions yet haven't heard that. I come from Tennessee, one of the heroes of our home state there is Andrew Jackson. He was a pretty fiery guy, old hickory. We have a hickory in North Carolina. Andrew Jackson, how did he get catapulted into fame? One battle, Battle of New Orleans at the close of the War of, the War of 1812. Did you know that battle was absolutely unnecessary? A treaty had been signed in Versailles, France, that ended the War of 1812, but they didn't have satellites, they didn't have radio, they didn't have CNN. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and so word had not yet reached the American colonies or states. And so thousands of people were killed, even though it catapulted Andrew Jackson to fame. Thousands of people were killed at the Battle of New Orleans. Totally unnecessary. The peace treaty had been signed. Peace Treaty has been signed in the blood of Jesus Christ, but many have not yet heard it. That's why we're a mission-minded. That's why we contribute to the support of 160 missionaries here. And all we have to do is tell them. We just have to send people, if we can't go ourselves, tell, send people who can proclaim the message of peace. We don't have to convince them of sin. That's the prerogative of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to suffer for them. Jesus Christ has already suffered for them. All we have to do is announce to them that God is ready to receive guilty, repentant sinners. Be ye reconciled to a holy, loving God. The angels would gladly trade places with us if they could. And so to learn how to beseech others in Christ's stead is our greatest need. An ambassador looks for common ground on which to broach a hostile or difficult state official. He's not going to compromise his mission or message, but he seeks for a point of agreement. And we need to do that. And one of the best ways that you can do that in your witnessing is to just give your testimony. It's scriptural for you to come up to a sinner at some point, maybe after you've broken the ice in some other way, and say, look, I was once like you are. I was alienated from God. 
I had no peace. I was a stranger to His covenant. But now I've been reconciled. I've been redeemed. I've been pardoned. I'm no longer an enemy. I've been adopted as a son. I'm a friend of God. And you can be too. What a glorious message we have. That's the sinner's greatest need. That's our greatest task. We often see the motto, the adage on bumper stickers and signs and in print. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. I've got one better for you. Friends don't let friends go to hell. Unwept over. Unwarned. You know, God's expectation of us is to be peacemakers. That's why Jesus said this in the seventh beatitude. And we are to exemplify peace. The Bible says, Paul said in Romans 12, verse 18, I love this verse. Romans 12 is such a practical chapter. Paul said, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. It's not always possible because the other party has some responsibility too. But as far as your concern, make sure that you are seeking peace and pursuing it. As we read in Psalm 34, verse 14, don't be a rabble-rouser. And that will always entail willingness to suffer and to deny self. I love to meditate on the life of Abraham, the friend of God in the Old Testament. Was Abraham a compromiser? No, not overall. He didn't compromise his convictions, but how he was willing to deny self. Now, he helped to raise a compromiser, his nephew Lot. Lot was a believer. He vexed his righteous soul with a filthy conversation of the wicked. Uh, he was ca- called a just man in the New Testament. So don't say Lot wasn't a believer. But what a weak believer he was. How unlike his noble uncle. And when they came to Canaan, when Abraham brought his nephew Lot with him, and they came into Canaan, And there was strife between their herdsmen, between the servants. Abraham did the noble thing, and he denied himself the well-watered plains of Jordan, though he could have said, that's what I deserve. I'm the leader here. And he offered them to his compromising nephew Lot, and the contention between the, the servants ceased. And so Abraham remained the separated one, living in tents, while his compromising nephew Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. And before long, he was all the way inside Sodom. And the most tragic thing about it was Sodom got in him and his family. And when judgment day came, who had power to help? The separated man. The peace-loving man. Please don't forget that. And what was Abraham's reputation among those around him, even though he lived in tents? Did they say, oh, he's a goody-goody. He's too, he, he thinks he's too good to have anything to do with us. No, no. When it came time for him to bury his dead, they said, just take your pick. Any place, you are a mighty prince among us. Wow. That's the reputation Abraham had with the heathen around him. Dear brothers and sisters, be at peace among yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5, 13. Be willing to suffer wrong rather than demand your rights. We're living in a day when everybody's demanding his rights. 
Jesus died for your wrongs. Spurgeon tells a story of a, a true story of a valiant soldier in India who was a big guy. But before he uh, entered the military, he was a prize fighter, he was a boxer. He was converted through the preaching of a missionary. He really got saved. Then when he entered the military, he was determined to live for Christ. You can do that. It won't be easy, but you can. And so the messmates, the guys, the fellow soldiers at the mess hall, they would make fun of him because they knew he professed to be a believer. One day in the mess hall, one of them deliberately threw a whole bowl of scalding soup at his face. This poor man instinctively tore open his clothes to wipe away the scalding liquid, and yet he had control of himself. And this is what came out of his mouth. He said, I am a Christian. I must expect this. And God gave him the grace to smile at his messmates. The one who was guilty, the one who was the culprit and the instigator, was totally disarmed. And he said this, if I had thought you would have taken it that way, I would have never have done it. I'm so sorry I ever did. And the malice of his messmates was rebuked by his patience, and they all owned, this is a true Christian. We need more like him. Don't stand up for their rights. Fourth and last thing I want you to see is the exaltation of the peacemakers. There's a, a blessing, a promise associated with each one of these virtues enjoined upon us in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? The children of God. The word called, there's very interesting. I looked it up. It really means owned. They shall be owned as the children of God. God owns us. He's not ashamed to call us his children. When we act that way. Just like God was not ashamed of his son, he owned his son when a voice broke the silence of the heavens and said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Of what does this blessedness consist? Well, first of all, it consists of resemblance to the Father. How many of you here, honestly, would tell me, Pastor, I want people to say about me, Sincerely, you remind me of your God. Would you raise your hand? What's wrong with the rest of you? Thank you. Maybe you didn't hear my question. We all ought to raise our hands. The word for children here is unique. There are two Greek words translated children or sons in the New Testament. Very few others. There's three or four, but this, the primary two. One is technon, which means born one. That is not the word here. The word technon is used in John 1, verse 12, which we often quote, probably memorize, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power, the authority, the right to be the technon, the children, the sons of God, born ones, sons by virtue of the new birth. That's not the word here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It's the word huios, which means a son who resembles his father by kinship. It implies dignity and honor. Technon, huios. Technon is a what? 
Say it, born one. Say it again, born one. Huios is one who resembles his father. Technon is a born one. Huios is one who resembles his father. All right, which are you? We ought to be both. Are you content with just being born again? And you know where I'm going, some of you. Just somehow slipping in the back door of heaven and securing a little cabin in the corner of glory land? Is that all you want? You know what I think about that song. You skewered me for it on my 60th birthday. Or have you set your sights on resembling your wonderful father? So that people say when they behold how you conduct yourself and your responses, that's like Christ. You're acting like your father. To be a peacemaker is to be like God and like the Son of God. But it's not just a matter of resembling the Father. We are blessed and called the children of God by being rewarded by the Father. The Bible says in James 3, verse 18, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. If we earnestly seek to be peacemakers, soul winners, God is going to let us reap what we sow. He's going to let us reap peace, the fruit of our righteousness. We are the favored ones who, as James says in the fifth chapter of his epistle, we are the ones who save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. We can have that inner joy of knowing we have a part in what causes the angels in heaven to rejoice when one sinner repents. This is all about spiritual reconciliation. Some writers go down a long rabbit trail talking about other kinds of reconciliation here as far as peacemakers are concerned. No, this is being, this is at one with God, atonement. Have you received God's gift of righteousness? Then the fruit of that will be peace. And once you've been reconciled to God and you understand peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, then you will want to be a ambassador of that peace and share it with others who are so deprived of it. So I close by saying this, we are never more godlike. We are never more godlike than when we are pleading with rebel sinners on Christ's behalf, be you reconciled to God. What a privilege it is for us who've been the recipients of that peace to be the diffusers of it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Will you join me today in seeking to be a super spreader of that contagion, the peace of God? Let's pray. Father, help us to see ourselves this morning the way you do. Help us to see ourselves as ambassadors, pleading with your enemies, be reconciled to God as peacemakers. Lord, that not necessarily what we are by nature, but even if we are by nature peace-loving and compliant and easygoing, we, we still need this spiritual gift. Forgive us for being so distracted, Lord. Forgive us for forfeiting the inner peace that Jesus has bequeathed to us so often our neighbors, when they see us in a crisis, they don't see any difference between us and the neighbor down the street that has nothing to do with Christ. 
Help us to manifest the peace of God and from a position of security in Christ and experiencing that continual peace of God. Lord, enable us to extend the promise of peace with God to those whose lives are characterized by anything but peace. They oppose themselves and God. We ask in Jesus' name and for His sake and His kingdom. Amen.